Good morning. This morning's scripture passage is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. That's Mark's gospel, 9, 2 to 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. As some of you know, uh, that one of our pastors, Jeremy, is actually having a baby this week. Him, him and uh, Caitlin are due this week, so uh, keep them in your prayers. But while I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a story from a friend of mine who for, you know, obviously for nine months, they've been waiting, learning, reading, and going to Lamaze classes. You think you've prepared uh, until the baby comes, then you quickly realize how much you're not ready. So this friend of mine told me that when his wife said, it's time, he started to get ready. So he had all the things prepared. He had his overnight bag ready. He had that in the car, got the car seat in the car, and had everything ready and started driving to the hospital when he realized that he forgot his wife at home. And I remember when I had uh, my first baby, or Jin had, Jin is the one that actually did most of the work, but I remember feeling the same kind of helplessness and not knowing what to do. You know, you want to help and try to soothe uh, your wife, but then she lashes out at you for, for just touching her. And so I wondered if, if uh, this is what Peter was feeling when he tells Jesus that he will set up three shelters for these prominent figures of the faith. And in our reading today, in this scene on this mountain, Jesus transfigured before the three disciples where his clothes were dazzling white, almost like the forced, uh, forced ghost in Star Wars, where you see Yoda glowing. I could imagine Jesus glowing with, with the force, and there with him is Moses and Elijah, kind of like, you know, Obi-Wan and, and Anakin. Okay, enough about Star Wars. But these two figures are the most prominent figures in the Old Testament. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. They not only represent these things, but they, they represent the two great revelations of God to the people of Israel. Moses, when he was on the mountaintop of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and Elijah on, top, on the mountaintop of Horeb, which is also called Sinai, where God, revealed in this, God is revealed in this thin silence. 
And here and now, Jesus transfigures or, or transforms into this, this, this glory of God in, him, in, in himself. And Jesus' transfiguration is actually considered a miracle in the church uh, history or in the church miracles. And it's, it's one of the only miracles that actually happened to Jesus, where we get to see this glimpse of his divinity. So Peter, not knowing what to do, seeing this amazing thing, blurts out this to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants to set up three shelters? Like, why shelters? The word shelter here is the same word as tabernacle in Hebrew, which was the place in which the presence of God dwelt. It was the place in which God would come and speak to his people. And in the Old Testament, they would build these shelters, this, these um, tents, or these meeting places where God would meet with his people. So it makes sense a little bit that Peter would want to do this. I mean, he's been following Jesus for a little while now and believes him to be the Messiah. And here he sees that belief come to fruition when Jesus is glittering and shining like the God he is. When I was in youth group, I went on a youth retreat to a place called uh, Jackson's Point. Um, it's a place that's run by Salvation Army. And while I was there, I remember experiencing God's presence like I've never had before. I remember feeling so convicted as this leap, not the lead pastor, as the guest speaker spoke and I heard his message. I felt like he was speaking to me as if God was talking to me through this person. I remember I was like crying, breaking down, and, and asking Jesus to be part of my life. And, and, and I remember just having this awesome moment and experience with God. It was as if I was on this mountaintop high. And I came home, came back to my normal life. And yes, I remember coming back thinking, oh, I'm not going to be the same person again. I'm, I'm, I'm changed. I'm different. But after a while, just you know, going through the normal motions of life, you end up going to do, doing the same things and being the same person. And then what happened was I started chasing those experiences, and you could call, call it that I became like a retreat junkie, where I would go from one retreat to another, you know, just, just longing for these experiences where I could uh, connect with God, chasing it. And I wanted to capture those moments, almost bottle it up, so that I can feel that close to God again. And in many ways, I wonder if this was what Peter was doing. He didn't realize what was happening, but wanted to make sure that he could capture that moment, to make sure that this moment would last, that if he could set up these, these three shelters and tabernacles, then with this Messiah and Moses and Elijah, people from everywhere would come and see how great Jesus was. And that Peter himself was part of something so special and awesome. I mean, this was the moment that Peter was waiting for. He believed Jesus to be the Messiah, and here's the proof of his Messiahship. Most people agree that the book of Mark is written from Peter's perspective. 
And I think this is important because of what this passage alludes to. In verse 2, it mentions that after six days, Jesus took them up to this mountain. The question to ask is, after six days of what? Let's read what happened six days ago. Mark chapter 8, 31 to 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Six days before, before this passage where Peter rebukes Jesus, Peter himself declared that Jesus was the Messiah. So just before this where Peter rebukes uh, Jesus, Peter himself said, you are the Messiah. And when Peter heard Jesus talking about how Jesus had to go and suffer and die, Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. Why? As you know, Peter, like many Jews, believed that the Messiah was supposed to rule with power and might and not suffer and die. To suffer and die would be the opposite of what a Messiah would be like. So after declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, when Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying, Peter had to pull Jesus aside and say, Hey, Jesus, what are you saying? You're supposed to be the Messiah. Don't say stuff like that. No one will believe you as the Messiah if you say such things. And we know what happens next. Jesus rebukes Peter and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus continues in verse 34 of chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but thinks that the Messiah should not suffer and disagrees with Jesus to the point that Jesus has to rebuke Peter when Peter tries to rebuke him. Then Jesus says to the crowd that whoever wants to be his followers, his disciple must also deny themselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. This is what happened six days before this mountaintop experience. Did Peter agree with Jesus after he was rebuked by him? Like, I wonder if Peter still disagreed with Jesus. And, like, what is he saying about taking up the cross? What is he saying about suffering and dying? So I I think it's with this backdrop that Peter experiences with James and John this magnificent moment where Jesus literally transformed in front of their faces to the point that, you know, his robe shone with such light and brilliance. So again, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Again, Peter recognizes the two of the most prominent figures in the history of Revelation and wants to set up these three tabernacles. He wants to see the glory now before going through the cross. Does Does he still consider the cross as something preposterous? Like, no, Jesus, you're not gonna suffer. I see you in your glory right now with these two amazing figures of our history. So the time is now. 
you know, whatever you talked about, suffering, dying on the cross, that's just rubbish. Let's, let's just build you these tabernacles so we could have people come and see your glory. But listen to what Mark says to Peter's suggestion. He says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. It's almost as if Mark is giving an excuse to why Peter did what he did. Mark isn't saying that what Peter suggested was a good thing, but more like, well, he didn't, know, he didn't know what he was talking about. He was just scared. He didn't know what to do. Just then, Mark tells us a cloud appeared and covered them. This cloud, again, represents the very presence of God in the Old Testament. And a voice came from the cloud saying this, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. In this transfiguration of Jesus, we see that Jesus transfigures with such light that he is more than what he was before. We see Moses and Elijah as a sign of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the prophets. And then we hear this voice from the clouds speaking the same words that God the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. What did Jesus say to Peter and his disciples that we should listen to? Well, just six days earlier, Jesus told Peter and the rest of the disciples that he will have to suffer to be rejected by his own people and die. He rebuked Peter for thinking otherwise and then told everyone else that if they want to follow Jesus, they will also need to carry the cross. And I think the contrast between Peter wanting to set up these tents to what God the Father says about listening to Jesus shows us the difference between what what Peter or, or what Jesus called human concerns versus what Jesus said are God's concern. Peter was concerned about making sure his version of the Messiah would continue instead of actually listening to what Jesus said his new kingdom would be like. Jesus isn't going to be this kind of king that, that, that Peter wanted him to be. The way of Jesus was different. It's subtle. It's subversive. It's through the cross. So what does it mean for G- Peter and the rest of his disciples to listen to Jesus? It means to recognize that the messiahship of Jesus isn't through might nor by power, but rather through suffering and death. If Peter wants to be a disciple of Jesus, he needs to be willing to deny himself, take up the cross, and follow the way of the cross. Don't build shelters or meeting places as a way to control the situation or to make sense of it all. Did you know, by the way, that there are actually churches on Mount Hermon or Tabor? That they're not sure where this real mountain is, but the actual mountain where you know, Peter suggested let's build these meeting places that we as Christians have actually built churches on. You know, the thing that Mark says we sh- maybe we shouldn't be doing. Like Peter, Jesus was like, I don't care about these things. But I, I find that to be ironic, if anything. And so don't listen to, to other voices or to your own preconceived ideas of what should happen or how God should be. Listen to Jesus who had already said to Peter that he will have to suffer and die. 
At our annual youth retreats uh, at Muskoka Woods, we would go up to the place called the hangar. So our youth would know this. And we would literally climb up to this place because it was up on a hill. And we would go there and worship God together with as much hype and excitement as humanly possible. You know, you got the fog, fog machines, like, the, you know, representing the cloud of God, maybe. You know, we got the lice representing Jesus, maybe, and the, and the, and the you know, the force. And, and, and it's packed, right? We have 600 youth with loud music and band and as much excitement as you can uh, generate. And we had this awesome mountaintop experience. And then we literally come down the hill from our mountaintop experience, feeling great and wanting another one like it. But it's what happens after that experience that matters, right? It's, it's how we live once we come down from the mountain that matters. Like, we can't live up on the mountaintop. We have to live where life actually happens. So... What does this mean for us as we live in this season just before Lent, as we enter into Lent? How does this revelation of Jesus impact us in the season of what feels a little less than ordinary and as we look for the extraordinary? I think what we learn from this story is that Jesus is the beloved Son of God who fulfills both the Old Testament law and the prophets. He is the Messiah in whom we are to listen to. We see Jesus in a state of being that is more than human and see a glimpse of his transcendence. We also know that to follow Jesus is to follow the cross and to deny ourselves. And these mountaintop experiences are good experiences. It can't be all the time and it can't all be the same, and every person has different types of moments like these, but these moments are, are moments of grace and goodness. Yet we need to remember that the cost of discipleship and the way of Jesus is through taking up the cross and denying ourselves. We do not use these moments as a way to bottle up God in some packageable way, but rather those moments are reminders of who Jesus is, that he is the beloved son that we are to listen to. Mountaintop uh, experiences can be a moment that can lead to building three shelters or obedience through the cross. It can either be a way of propagating our own ideas about God or they can be what they are, a revealing of who God is and who we are in him, a chance for us to hear from God and listen to him. It's not our own view or perception of who God is that matters, but it's, it's in listening to the voice of God who says to listen to Jesus, his beloved son. It's like when Jesus was, Jesus, it's like when Jin was giving birth to our son and I was trying to soothe her with, with the tricks that I learned from my Lamas class. When, I, when the first baby came, you know, I tried to rub her back and that didn't do anything. That actually made it worse for her. So she's like, don't touch me, right? And, and I learned quickly that what I needed to do was just get her some ice chips, right? And just keep feeding her ice chips. So by the second child, by the second time of this uh, birthing experience, when the second child came and, and our midwife suggested that I, I, you know, soothe her, I'm like, no, 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 no. I know what she wants. She just needs me to feed her, feed her ice chips. 
And so that's what I did. Instead of trying to do something I thought she needed, I just simply listened to her. You know, and in, in spiritual formation, there's this concept of the false self and the true self. And you've heard us talk about this uh, a little bit now. And, you know, the false self is, is the life we create, the identity we create uh, based on our own desires, right? W- with us at the center of who we are. And, the tr- and our true selves is when we put Jesus at the center and we live our life uh, out of who he is and in relationship to him that we become our true selves. There's also this one other uh, category by this man named Moholland who wrote this book. He talks about it as the false religious self. The false religious self is using religion or using God as a way to just create this another layer of your false self. And, you know, we see this example in the Bible of the Pharisees where Jesus says, you don't actually know me. You may do all the right things, you may say all the right things, and you may follow all the laws, but you actually don't know who I am. It's the same thing when Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? He says Satan and says, you know, you look at things from a human's perspective than from God's. And Mulholland says that the crux of the journey from the false religious self to that of our true selves is this ever-deepening abandonment of the construct we call God and an ever more profound willingness for God to be whatever God will be in our life at any given moment. And I think this speaks to what Jesus was saying about how we need to take up the cross to deny ourselves and to follow him. Because in many ways, that is our baptistic identity. That's what we do when we enter into baptism, is we die to ourselves and are made new in Christ. We can't control God nor put him in a box because God cannot be controlled. In the same way, we are called to listen to Jesus, who is the beloved child of God, we are to listen to his call for us to follow him to the cross, as we, and as we follow him, we will understand that it is through the cross that there is freedom, that it is through death that we have life. Following Jesus is not, a, not another way of avoid, avoiding pain or death, but it is through it that we will find new life. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, Jesus, we thank you for moments like uh, the mountaintop experiences where we get to see a glimpse of your glory, where you reveal to us a little bit more about who you are. And there are moments of grace and it's a gift, yet it can be so easily taken by us as another way of living our lives the way we want, of, of putting you in, in controllable, control, controllable ways and ways of just kind of uh, boxing you in. So Jesus, I pray that, that we would be able to um, remember those moments or have when we do have those moments, see it as opportunities to to actually hear from you, to listen to what you have to say to us. 
And thank you that your ways are higher than our ways, that your ways is through the cross and through death. And though that may seem hard and impossible, as we enter into this season of Lent, we know that that is the way of life. So we ask for your strength, for courage to be able to let go and to be able to die to ourselves so that we can find life in you. In your name we pray. Amen.